0: US President Joe Biden unveils ambitious plans to overhaul American infrastructure as a central plank of his economic recovery plan. We'll assess why there appears to be such a variation in vaccination rates in cities as New York speeds ahead and places like Toronto lag behind. And as Germany prepares to return the Benin bronzes to Nigeria, we'll assess the complicated process of returning works of art to the places they were taken from. Monocle's editors and correspondent Are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there, and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday, the 1st of April, and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And to discuss some of the day's big news stories with us, are Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello, who's at Midori House in London, and in New York City is Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan. Henry and Carlotta, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Henry, to start with you, it is the 1st of April, so it's April Fool's Day. Have you spent the day uh, trying? Trying to find the strategically placed whoopee cushions and banana skins around the Henry Ree Sheridan residence there in New York City.
1: I've got to be completely honest with you. I I have just realised that now you said it that April it's April Fool's Day today. I'm not sure if it's as closely observed in in North America. I'm not sure how you found it in Canada, Thomas, but. Um, in, in in Britain, it's quite a kind of like, uh, it, it's almost a national event, isn't it? I feel that people kind of invest quite a lot of energy in it. But I don't know, I haven't, I haven't really noticed it since I've moved here, to be honest.
0: Well, still, be sure to keep your wits about you, Henry, just in case there's someone listening to this who'll slip a toy mouse or something under your pillow a little later today. And Carlotta, how is the week treating you there in London? It's been a big week for London, a tentative opening up of the lockdown that's coincided with these incredibly warm temperatures it looks like watching from afar how's the how's this first week of relaxation treated you
2: well, you know what Thomas if this week uh, is an indication of what's to come this summer I think it was going to be a really happy one uh, we as you mentioned we have uh, we've been having a heat wave uh, for all of this week uh, registering even 24 degrees uh, last Tuesday uh, 24 degrees Celsius which of course for London in March I don't remember that ever happening before and on Monday we saw the first uh, kind of step in relaxing some of the uh, lockdown measures with now we're are allowed to meet with people outside of our households um, in public spaces Um, so up to six people what the UK is calling the rule of six or two households together so it just meant that you know that paired up with good weather uh, just meant really busy parks and canals with people just really happy to see some of their friends for the first time this year for many of them Um, and it's been just really lovely to you know see a bit of the city life back uh, in London.
0: Well, Toronto's about to go back into lockdown, we think, so I'm feeling rather envious of you there, Carlotta, in London. But Carlotta Rabello and Henry Rhys Sheridan, it's great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, in Pittsburgh yesterday, U.S. President Joe Biden unveiled a sweeping set of proposals that would overhaul infrastructure in the United States at a cost of some two trillion U.S. dollars. Here's some of what President Biden said yesterday about the role corporate taxation will play in the plans, the raising of which looks like it will pay for the bulk of his proposals.
3: We're establishing a global minimum tax for U.S. corporations at 21 percent. We're going to level the international playing field. That alone will raise $1 trillion over 15 years. We'll also eliminate deductions by corporations for offshoring jobs and shifting assets overseas. You do that, you pay a penalty. You don't get a reward, in my plan. And use the savings from that to give companies tax credits to locate manufacturing here and manufacturing and production here in the United States and will significantly ramp up the IRS enforcement against corporations who either fail to report their incomes or underreport. It's estimated that could raise hundreds of billions of dollars. All this adds up to more than what i proposed to spend in just 15 years. It's honest. It's fiscally responsible. And by the way, as the experts will tell you, it reduces the debt, the federal debt, over the long haul. But let me be clear. These are my ideas on how to pay for this plan. others have additional ideas, let them come forward. I'm open to other ideas, so long as they do not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000.
0: US President Joe Biden there, speaking during the unveiling of his so-called American Jobs Plan at a carpentry training facility in Pennsylvania yesterday. Well, on today's edition of The Briefing, Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak, gave his reaction to the proposals. So really... You know, on on the one hand, this is being sold as an infrastructure bill, but again, when you also look at the challenge that I was mentioning earlier, if, if you t- talk about the infrastructure bit itself, it's actually not that large when you think about 600 billion over eight years, and as I said, 500 billion over five years just to keep things running. So in that sense, really, the numbers are not as big as you seem, and that's part of uh, where also maybe the disagreement is going to start to come on this, especially you know the, the bipartisan side or Republicans, because... At the end of the day, this isn't just about infrastructure anymore. It is also an effort to get other important progressive projects through at a time where Joe Biden feels he has that political momentum to spend money. Chris Chermak there speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Uh, Carlotta, the American jobs plan, as it's been called by President Biden, is being described by some as an equivalent to the New Deal in the US in terms of the size of the spending involved here. Walk us through, if you could, some of the, the key elements of the plan that was unveiled yesterday.
2: Absolutely. In a lot of aspects, this has been, you know, is going to be the biggest investment since World War II in certain areas. One of the things, of course, uh, as expected in an infrastructure plan is the investments proposed for uh, the transportation sector. And in here, uh, the Biden administration is trying to address uh, several uh, aspects, not only, you know, modernization and uh, creating um, new lines or better uh, uh, transit lines in certain areas, but also, of course, with a climate um centric approach as well being conscious of the cl- of climate change as well and it really the plan really prioritizes addressing you know some of these long standing and uh, persistent um inequalities that have been you know over the years have fallen through the cracks and are present in the US um one of the things of course um that immediately jumps um uh, whenever you read the plan, is uh, this idea to you know fix highways? A proposal of you know modernizing over twenty thousand miles of highways and main roads and streets, um, also repairing a lot of bridges um, in the country, up to ten thousand of the you know smaller and worst bridges in the nation, um, pre- preserving uh, a lot uh, of the existing infrastructure as well, with you know the mindset of creating jobs, etc. Um, but one of the things. I notice as well which is quite interesting is the investment for the aviation industry as well of this you know two trillion dollar package um 25 billion dollars uh, will go to upgrade aviation uh, as a whole you know that includes anything from updates to uh, air traffic control uh, renovations of terminals investments in what they describe as affordable convenient and car- free access to air travel we need to remember that in the United States you know, not only are airports not particularly an enjoyable experience, as I think the three of us can attest to, um, particularly when you compare it to traveling around Europe or Asia. Um, but it is quite difficult in certain places to arrive to the airport without a car. Um, you know, either in frequent or non-existent uh, public um, f- uh, transit facilities uh, to get us there. So um, this aviation ambition, you know, wants to make the U.S. a global leader when it comes to that um, and see it rise to the rankings, they even. Quote the fact that not, there's not one single United States airport on the top 25 of airports around the world, um, which is quite a significant thing to note as well. One of the things that I also uh, think is quite interesting in this plan is when we are reading a bit, you know, further into it and go uh, beyond, you know, the headlines. When they talk about, you know, redressing historic inequities and you know, build the future of transportation infrastructure. Um, They talk here about, you know, of course, how the car has dominated so much of um, American cities' narrative. And we all know that the the car does tend to be predominant in in terms of thinking when it comes to city building and urban planning rather than the pedestrian or even, you know, bicycles or public transit. But I found it really interesting that they decided to, in this specific plan, to quote um, and to call out two, you know, highway projects by name that have been quite destructive to the urban environment. They mention here um, the Claiborne Expressway in New Orleans or the I-81 in Syracuse um, that have, you know, those mega highways that destroyed neighborhoods, uh, made people move out and had have to had to be rehomed, uh, destroyed communities, and of course they have not solved any of the issues. Um, we all know by now that adding an extra lane does not fix fix traffic; just increases it. Um, but it's quite interesting to see that they're actually naming uh, these particular projects, uh, kind of in a way recognizing that um this was not a good decision back then and it hasn't worked out um the way they wanted um there's i just finally just want to mention how throughout the plan the 26 page plan that he announced yesterday one of the other things that is really nice to see is how often the word Resiliency or resilience shows up um, and actually, you know, addressing the importance of, you know, building not only to last, but to tackle a lot of the inequity and inequalities uh, that people experience due to bad infrastructure.
0: And Henry, Joe Biden pitched this plan in a bipartisan way. What do we know so far about the reaction by some Republicans? Because it is infrastructure that anchors this plan, isn't it? But it is, as, as Chris, our news editor, alluded to, about much more as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I think as as Carlotta uh, touched upon uh, somewhat uh, uh, in her answer, um it is being cast as not only uh, a kind of economic boost, but also explicitly uh, as a uh, mechanism uh, for uh, realising social justice. One of the measures I'm really struck by uh, is, is, is the uh, provisions made within the legislation to close what's become referred to as the digital divide. Now, pretty astonishingly, 35% of rural Americans lack access to the internet at minimally acceptable speeds, uh, which, even at the best of times, is going to put a community at a social and economic advantage. Over the course of the last year, where work, uh, but most importantly, uh, school, uh, has become remote, you know, students which who don't have access to, to high-speed internet have, have really uh, suffered... Um, in terms of not having access to, to lessons and learning resources that have moved online. Uh, and so simply by increasing or improving, rather, the provision of high-speed, high-quality internet uh, uh, around the country, particularly in these areas that are currently lacking it, the thinking is that this is going to, uh, this is going to uh, have a really significant impact on, on social equity.
0: Well, next here on The Late Edition, how are vaccination programmes in cities faring? In New York earlier this week, all adults were given access to sign up for a coronavirus vaccine, while in other cities, like here in Toronto, vaccination appointments have in some cases gone unused due to complications with the sign-up process and delays in the supply of vaccine doses. Um, Henry, I was speaking to someone in New York yesterday for an interview for the next edition of Monocle magazine, who described the mood in New York as being pretty buoyant there in terms of of the vaccinations and the state of the rollout at the moment. Is that how you're seeing it from from your corner of New York City?
1: It's certainly true that the rollout of vaccinations is progressing quite fast here in New York. So this week, New York residents aged 30 and over, um, and also incarcerated people, uh, became eligible to be vaccinated and as of April the 6th uh, the state will have uh, what's referred to as universal elgi- eligibility so all New York residents over the age of 16 will have access to a vaccine which is significantly faster than the vast majority of uh, places in in America. I booked my vaccination this week and it definitely instills a sense of optimism when you can when you're able to do that um, but I think that it's worth noting that there is still a a high uh, uh level of, of, of coronavirus in New York. There's a steady stream of COVID cases. Uh it, it, it is actually uh at at a at an extremely high risk level. Uh uh and and I think that there's a pronounced sense of cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, people feel optimistic, and perhaps justifiably so given the rollout of the vaccine. If you go into Manhattan, which I have several times in the last few weeks, uh, it, it, there is a st- not. I wouldn't say that it's back to normal. Obviously, people are socially distancing and wearing masks, but it's certainly very busy. Restaurants are open at 50% capacity, which feels very weird, actually. Uh, when you when you walk into one, I haven't myself dined in one yet, but I've I've walked through uh, uh, one of them, um, and and I think there is this kind of. There's, there's a little bit of a kind of mental division between, on the one hand, uh, health experts who are uh, still extremely cautious about reopening at such a clip uh, and point to the fact that COVID cases are quite high. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I think a sizable uh, portion of the public who uh, want to believe uh, that, that a return to normality is uh, will, will, that we're on the threshold of it.
0: And Carlotta, it's interesting, isn't it, that idea that in places where vaccination rollouts are going, fairly speedily, uh, that it's this idea of, well, lockdowns can be eased a little because there's something in the form of vaccinations to counter it. Here in Toronto, vaccinations have been very slow, and we are now seeing the restrictions are coming back again. But as Henry pointed there, maybe that correlation isn't maybe quite as easy to make, is it, when you actually look at the numbers of how the virus is progressing, even in places where vaccination processes have have been particularly effective?
2: Absolutely. And it has, of course, a lot to do now with, you know, the new issue is the variants. And of course, they are new, as are the vaccines. And uh, there needs to be further testing to find out whether all the vaccines are are effective against all the variants or not. And we're finding out that that might be not necessarily the case. So despite, you know, efficient vaccine rollouts, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we're out of the woods uh, yet. It's interesting, you know, the, the WHO this just this morning was saying how, you know, uh, Europe, in particular the European Union's um, vaccine rollout uh, has been, and I quote, unacceptably slow. Um, and that's why uh, we're seeing, you know, the resurgence of cases particularly in France, where just yesterday, uh, the, the President Emmanuel Macron announced um, that, you know, the country was going to go back into a third lockdown. Um, all cl- schools would be closed from next week. Um, you know, students will return to remote uh, learning. And. Um, You know, some lockdown measures are being extended to other parts rather than just Paris. Um, All non-essential shops are going to be closed. Um, You cannot leave um, uh, your local area. So there's a ban on traveling further away than 10 kilometers or six miles further away from your home without good reason or a valid legal uh, reason. And this is, you know, there's now uh, over 5,000 people in intensive care. And that is uh, the main reason, as we've had in most countries, lockdowns are not only to um, avoid the spread of the virus, but also to avoid um, pushing the health services and hospitals to a breaking point. Uh, So it has to do a lot with that. And in Belgium, for example, also here in Europe, uh, we have, you know, uh, four weeks of Easter lockdown uh, coming into place um, that, you know primary and secondary schools are closed until the 19th of April, if I'm not mistaken. You know, the prime minister talking a lot about, you know, the high uh, infection rates at at a younger age. And so the dynamic here on this side of the world is slightly changing. And then you look at the UK where, you know, vaccination rollout has been uh, quite efficient. Um, Over 50% of all adults in the country have received at least their first dose of a vaccine. Um, And this slow easing of restrictions, um, a lot of people have hope that we do not need to go back into lockdown. But I'm I'm not so sure. Hearing Henry there um, talk about uh, passing uh, in front of restaurants that even though they're at 50% capacity, I don't remember what that's like. And I'm quite missing it and counting down the days when that's possible. If it is in the summer, um, that's fine. Uh, I just really wish that this, we can say that this is our last lockdown. That's what I'm hoping for.
0: Well, finally here on The Late Edition, Germany's Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation has been tasked with overseeing the return of the so-called Benin Bronzes, sculptures looted from what is now Nigeria by colonial forces in the 19th century. Well, as Ben Luke, Reviews Editor of the Art Newspaper in London, told us on today's edition of The Globalist, the process of returning the artefacts has been long and complicated. Dan Hicks, who's written a lot about this in this book called The Brutish Museums, which I really uh, recommend people read, has said that it's really notable that Germany is actually leading the colonial repatriation of British colonial loot. So this is a really notable um, distinction between what's going on in Britain, which is at, at the moment pretty much silent. So the British Museum has... Uh, a great number of these bronzes and there is a lot of pressure and there has been growing pressure on the British Museum to return them but of course it would require a change of law in the UK but that's been done before with Nazi loot so I think there is growing pressure. We wait to see any really consistent argument from the British Museum as to why they, they can keep them on a moral on moral grounds. The Art Newspaper's Ben Luke there, speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Henry, as Ben outlined there, the argument that an artwork that was procured by what would easily count as theft today should be returned to where it came from is a is a clear one. But there's also an argument, as has been made in the case of the Benin Bronzes in Germany previously, that their preservation or the curation of them may in fact be more secure in some of the institutions, some of the museums, that are now considering how to send them back to where they were made.
1: That's correct. I mean before I um before I go on to outline some some of the arguments for um for for not returning uh, uh, things like the Benin bronzes and other other cultural artifacts that were looted, it's important to state that I I I personally don't actually endorse any of the arguments on either side. I think it's an extremely complicated uh, question. As you hinted at, there's a kind of pretty straightforward argument for for keeping them in these museums. That the museums are institutions which are well equipped to to care for them. Um, that's not complicated. There are some more complicated arguments for not repatriating uh, these these artefacts as well. One of them is that it's sometimes difficult to draw a direct line between the inhabitants of the places uh, these artefacts were made in, the current day inhabitants rather, uh, and, and the people who who made them. So in the instance of the Benin bronzes, uh, the first wave of them were created uh, in, in the 13th century uh, uh now this is long before the the modern state of of Nigeria existed um they were made by benin craftsmen uh for for the for the king at the time who was the king of an empire um uh, and and the royal court fashioned uh some of these plaques out of out of uh, brass uh bought by portuguese Traders had been exchanged for, among other goods, slaves. Uh, the point being that uh, the circumstances under which they were produced were not exactly morally ideal. Um, so, so if you're going to, I suppose, the argument for keeping them that I've been outlining uh, in the countries that they're currently in would be that if you're going to, to criticize the uh, circumstances under which Britain, for example, procured them as as not morally ideal, then you have to be consistent. Uh, uh, in applying those standards to the circumstances in which they were created, um, but I'm playing—if you like—devil's advocate. As I say, I, I don't personally have a consistent uh, position on this on this matter. <laughs>
0: And Carlotta, we heard Ben Luke describe this move in Germany as being close to a landmark move in this area. Do you think it's likely that other institutions, we heard that the British Museum, for example, has stayed relatively silent on many of these conversations. Do you think that other institutions might be tempted to to look again at this, this issue and to maybe follow on from, from Germany's lead here?
2: Um, I think it's likely. And I also think um, that Germany is following... Uh, other leads uh, previously. Uh, This story makes me think, you know, back to uh, the beginning of this year, I believe it was either at the end of January or beginning of February, when the Netherlands uh, actually, um, the government issued a new guideline to basically help return stolen loot to, uh, you know, the countries of origin. And they issued all these guidelines, you know, the the colonial collections and recognition of injustice. That's the name of the, the report that uh, was prepared by uh, the Dutch government. And, you know, uh, they talk about the need to rectify historic injustice. And they colla and this it outlines guidelines to collaborate with you know the countries of origin and their requests to get uh, artifacts returned to um to them and you know uh, the idea to help them tell their own stories um and the fact that this guideline is um says uh that is an unconditional uh return and this is of course applies to objects that are in the custody of state museums or state galleries um and when the Return is formally requested by another country, and that in itself, I thought it was really interesting back then. I remember, you know, reading how a lot of experts thought that this move um, could make the Netherlands a leader in, you know, repatriating artifacts um, that were taken during uh, uh, the colonial era, um, and. Perhaps having, you know, a more structured approach like that uh, can help guide, uh, be it other governments or private institutions, uh, to act in similar ways. Because uh, uh, it, it is a complicated argument and a complicated discussion, as uh, Henry was just mentioning. You know, um, there the, are the idea that, of course, you know, being in a museum that we can be... Uh, Uh, well kept and is viewed by more people, so therefore informs larger parts of the world population about uh, the particular story uh, and history of that object and uh, everything that's associated with it. Um, There's an argument for that. And of course, there's an argument to it was stolen, it shouldn't belong there. And of course, it should go back to the country of origin. So I think having You know, a structured guideline can really, really help um, making this, you know, something that is, it stops being revolutionary and just starts being the norm.
0: Well, Carlotta Ribello and Henry Rees sheridan thank you both very much indeed for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Our studio manager today was Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow, but in the meantime, we'll have more news and discussion for you on tomorrow morning's edition of The Globalist, which begins live from Midori House at 7am London time. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis here in Toronto, Thank you very much for listening and
2: goodbye for now.